Well, this summer we have been studying the topic of spiritual warfare, and our primary focus has been on Paul's classic treatment of spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, which I think you all are aware is the clearest, most comprehensive instruction on the subject in the Bible. And I trust that we've all been learning things about Satan and about sin and about temptation that will help us resist Satan and stand firm against the relentless onslaught of the great enemy of our souls. Now for me, the key to learning something is not just hearing it, but seeing it. How many visual learners do we have here, right? Show me, and I'm going to probably pick up on it, pick it up a lot quicker than if you just tell me how to do it. Um, Today, we're going to see how to resist temptation and ward off Satan's attack by looking at the greatest, most important spiritual showdown ever fought in the history of the world. The future of mankind rested on the outcome of this battle. Our eternal destiny was hanging on this fight. And of course, I'm referring to the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness. And I think any discussion of spiritual warfare would be incomplete without looking at this epic struggle. And so we can find this account in the Gospels. I'm choosing uh, this morning, I've chosen to look at Luke's account. And so if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13 together. You can also find this same account in Matthew 4. But let's read it. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall not worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem. And had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Father, we're so grateful that your spirit chose to preserve this account of Jesus' temptation in the garden, or excuse me, in the wilderness. It's a passage that we've uh, intersected with already on multiple occasions in this summer series on, on spiritual warfare. It's really at the heart of everything we've talked about And I pray that as we go to school, as it were, on Jesus and how he resisted temptation, how he warded off the attacks of Satan, Lord, that we would be uh, good listeners today. We would be receptive and responsive to the things that you would have us learn so we could be who you want us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The way I'd like us to look at these 13 verses is that Luke is like a sports announcer who gives a blow-by-blow commentary of the three-round bout between Satan and Jesus. Now, you may not be into UFC, um, but it's been 
really a craze, become a craze in, you know, the last decade or so, and uh, doesn't seem like it's slowing down anytime soon, but uh, they have a thing called UFC Fight Night, and uh, I'm not watching that, just so you know, but I just see it advertised. And the way they advertise these fight nights, right, is these these big posters or graphics where they have the two fighters face-to-face or side-by-side, and it says, like, Cortez versus whatever, right? And so here we have, if we were to have a graphic of this passage, here we have Jesus and Satan standing face-to-face, right, with the big letters, Satan versus Jesus. And I think Luke's main purpose for including this account in his gospel was to prove that, that Jesus is the sinless son of God, who is the only one qualified to be the savior from sin. And if you notice the, the, the verses that come immediately before this, verses 23 through 38 are a genealogy of the life of Christ going all the way back to Adam. But then notice verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. What's the last phrase say? The son of God. So I think it's clear that Luke's uh, purpose in including this was to prove that he was indeed not just the son of Adam, but the son of God. But I also think that the Spirit of God had another purpose for including this in Luke's record of Christ's life and ministry. I think he wanted to provide us with an example to follow in our fight against the schemes of the devil. And obviously there is no better example than Jesus. And in this narrative, he modeled for us how to resist Satan and to stand firm against him. And so as we're going to see towards the end, this account contains a strategy for overcoming temptation. And if we use the same strategy strategy that Jesus used in this account, we too can have victory over Satan like he did. But let's look first of all at these three rounds, this three-round battle royal, if you will, between Satan and, and Jesus. Or if you wanted to continue with that language of the wrestling federation, right? This is the ultimate spiritual smackdown going on um, between Satan and Jesus. And under each of these rounds, or in each of these rounds, we're going to see two things. We're going to see Satan's deception, and I specifically chose to call it deception because we said a couple weeks ago that really if you get in your mindset that temptation is really deception, that might help when you're being tempted. Instead of saying, I'm being tempted right now, to tell yourself, no, I'm being deceived right now. I'm getting conned. I'm getting scammed. And so we're going to see Satan's deception, the deception that he threw out at Jesus. And then we're going to see Jesus' defense, okay? So those two little subpoints under each of these rounds. So first of all, let's look at Satan's deception in verses 1 through 3. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. I'll just stop there for a second. So the Holy Spirit had just descended upon Jesus at his baptism, affirming him to be God's son and empowering him for service. And you can go look in the previous chapter, verses 21 and 22, right before the genealogy. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Mark recorded here uh, that immediately after his baptism, the Spirit impelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness. That's Mark chapter one, verse 12. So this was intended to be Jesus' final preparation for his public ministry. Get baptized by the Holy Spirit, get tempted in the wilderness by Satan, and then we're ready to roll. That wilderness that Luke refers to here is the Judean wilderness between uh, Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, 
It's about 35 miles long and about 15 miles wide. And those of you that have been to Israel when they took you down to the Dead Sea, uh, you will remember this area. You never forget it once you see it. Uh, it's actually um, referred to as the devastation. Because even to this day, it's a dry, dusty, hot, desolate wasteland. And that's where Jesus was, being tempted for 40 days. And I remember riding on the tour bus in Israel, and just as we drove uh, through all those jagged rocks that kind of sloped down to the Dead Sea, and just thinking about, wow, this is where it all went down. This is where Jesus was wandering for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. I mean, nobody would want to be out here for half a day, let alone 40 days. But it says that he was tempted by the devil for 40 days, literally tempted continuously. So Satan was what was nipping at Christ's heels this entire time. And in other words, don't, don't just think, well, there was only three temptations. There was multiple temptations. Um, Jesus was as tempted his entire life, just like we are. But Jesus went to the desert for these 40 days for the sole specific purpose of being tempted by Satan. And so for 40 days, Satan tried to get Jesus to sin. And he did everything in his power to thwart the plan of redemption. Because he knew that if Christ was a sinner, then he couldn't be our savior. If Jesus had sinned, right, he couldn't save us from our sin. And so after 40 days, when Jesus was at the height of, of physical, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion, Satan unleashed this final flurry of blows upon him in a desperate attempt to get him to give in to sin. Notice verse 2. It says, and he ate nothing during these day, those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. I guess so. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God... Tell this stone to become bread. So Jesus hadn't eaten anything for over a month now, and his human hunger naturally craved something to eat. We have to remember that Jesus was a human, right? 100% human, 100% God. It's a mystery. Uh, don't even try to think about it. You'll hurt yourself, okay? Um, but that's what we learn from the scriptures. And so we need to see Jesus in his humanness here. And he was hungry, like all of us would be. But there was a lot more going on here than simply Jesus satisfying his hunger. Satan wasn't doubting here whether or not Jesus was really the son of God. He knew exactly who he was dealing with. As did every demon that Jesus ever confronted. They said, oh, and they would fall down and worship him, right, as the son of God. And beg him not to send them to the pit. And so... What he was saying here when it says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread, he was actually saying, since you are the son of God. But we know who you are. Well, let's not play games. I was there in eternity past, right, in heaven. He knew exactly who Jesus was. And so Satan was trying to get Jesus to doubt who he was. Zane wasn't doubting who he was. He was trying to get Jesus to doubt who he was, to doubt what God had said about him at his baptism. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. What Satan was implying was, if you really are God's beloved son, then what are you doing out in this God-forsaken wasteland on the verge of starvation? I mean, surely God, if he's pleased with you, he wants you to live a better life than this. And so he tried to get Jesus to, to, to question his father's care and get him to use his powers to provide that which God hadn't. To basically take a rock and turn it into bread, which would have been a supernatural act of God. But to do this, Jesus would have to go against God's will. Because God's will for him at this moment 
was to humbly lay aside the independent use of his divine attributes and abilities and to only use them when God directed him to. We find this in Philippians chapter 2, right? The kenosis. And so Satan wanted Jesus to act independently from God by using his own powers to supply for his own needs. And so he was suggesting here that, that being hungry was incompatible with being God's son. And certainly God would not want him to have to endure such hardship and discomfort. And that was Satan's deception. But now let's look at Jesus' defense. Verse 4, and Jesus answered him, it is written. So he's quoting scripture. Man shall not live on bread alone. And actually the full quote is in, found in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. But by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. We're going to talk a little bit in more depth about this um, on Wednesday night, Lord willing, in Deuteronomy 8, um, critical passage for us to understand, but Moses was reminding the people of Israel how he had led them and provided for them while they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years to test them, to see whether or not they would obey him or not. And again, I think this is just a good reminder for us that temptations... And trials are a test of our allegiance to Christ and a test whether or not we're going to trust God. And God humbled the Israelites and let them be hungry. And then he fed them with manna to teach them to trust him for their daily sustenance. And if you remember, they were only able to collect enough for that day. In other words, they had to wake up tomorrow morning trusting that there was going to be more food. And those that did kind of hoard it, the preppers amongst them, right, they hid the extra in their tent while the next morning it was already moldy and rotten. And so they had to trust God for his daily care. And ultimately, I think he was teaching them that life is more than food, Food isn't the most necessary part of life. God's word is far more important because it provides us with what we need most and that's spiritual nourishment. Jesus said in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, serving and obeying God was Jesus's top priority, not worrying about when or what he was going to eat next. In fact, Jesus encouraged his followers to live the same way. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, he said, don't worry, don't be anxious for anything. Trust God to provide for your needs, your, your clothes, your food. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. And I think too often we, we worry and fret about physical or material or financial Needs, and we're, we're prone to question whether or not God cares about our needs or even knows about our needs. And that's when we're tempted to, to meet those needs ourselves and satisfy those desires that God, for his own sovereign purposes, has left unmet or unsatisfied. Do you have some of those? Do you have some needs or desires that you've wondered, well, why hasn't the Lord fulfilled those. I, I don't know what to tell you other than what the Bible says that the Lord withholds no good thing to those who walk uprightly. And don't, don't take it upon yourself to figure out how you can satisfy those desires if that's not what God's will is for your life. I think what we can learn from this first temptation, it's always better to obey and depend on God to provide for our needs instead of taking matters into our own hands. And we need to learn to, to wait on the Lord to provide no matter how important or urgent a need may seem to us at the time. I'll never forget the man who trained me in youth ministry years ago, shared a, a, a true story that he was at home one night and he got a phone call from one of his friends. And he said, hey, the doctor just said that my wife's in labor. Uh, if we don't 
abort this baby, she could lose her life. What, what do I do? What do I say? How do we respond? Now, this is a crisis moment, right? Your, your beloved wife's in, 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 in labor, and the doctor is telling you, if we don't take this baby's life, it will take your wife's life. And my friend responded. He said, don't play God. Don't play God. You got to trust him. And in God's providence, he took the baby and spared his wife's life. I think this is, again, just a reminder that Jesus refused to take matters into his own hands. Or if you could say, he refused to play God at that moment. He remained in his humanness, right? And he chose instead to trust his father to meet his needs in his way and in his time. So that's round one. Jesus won that round. Round two, again, Jesus, or excuse me, Satan's deception in verse five through seven, and he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish, therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Now, this was probably some sort of supernatural vision in which Satan was able to show Jesus all the inhabited earth. Israel, Egypt, Asia, the Roman Empire, you name it. He saw it all. And you might think, well, what's up with Satan? It seems he's kind of outputting his coverage here, you know, saying that he could give all this to, to Jesus. Well, this was a legitimate offer by Satan. Because originally God had entrusted man with dominion to rule over the earth. But the moment that Adam succumbed to Satan's temptation and, and sinned, he surrendered that rule to Satan. That Christ referred to Satan as the ruler of the world. Paul referred to Satan as the God of this age and the prince and the power of the air. And the apostle John said that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. So this was a legitimate offer and, and Satan was asking Jesus to strike a deal with him. To kind of reach a compromise. Let's, let's, let's have a little compromise here. In essence, what he was saying was, hey, you and I both know that all this is already promised to you. Why wait for what's rightfully yours? You're going to rule it all someday anyway. You know that. I know that. Why not rule right now? All I ask is that you acknowledge my present authority over the world by bowing down and worshiping me, and then I'll hand it all over to you. Does that sound familiar, what we know about Satan's origins? What did he want before he got cast out of heaven? What led to him being cast out of heaven? He wanted to be worshipped like God. So Satan was offering Jesus, I guess you could say it this way, a shortcut to success. And his reasoning went sort of like this, well, why endure the long, painful suffering and humiliation that is in front of you when you have the painless, when you could have painless glory instantly? Just for a split second of idolatry, right? Jesus could bypass the cross and go directly to the throne. But Jesus reject, rejected Satan's terms and refused to do things Satan's way because he knew God's plan was for him to reign after his death and resurrection. And so we come to Jesus' defense. In verse eight, Jesus answered him, it is written, again quoting scripture, this time he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Did you notice that Satan hadn't said anything about Jesus serving him? But Jesus knew that whatever you worship, you also serve. 
And again, from the beginning, Satan has always wanted to usurp God's place and receive worship. Isaiah 14, verse 13, uh, a veiled reference to Satan in uh, talking about the king of Babylon here. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. And so Jesus had to remind Satan here that, that he was simply a created being who was created by God to worship and serve him. And that God is the only one worthy to be worshipped and served. He still hadn't gotten that. He was slow on the uptake. And again, a great reminder to us that we must never bow down to anyone or anything else but God. And I think another thing that we could take away from this second temptation is that Satan is always trying to get us to take the easy way. To avoid pain. To travel the path of least resistance. To sacrifice the eternal for the temporary. One commentator said it this way, quote, there are no shortcuts in the Christian life and there is no easy way to spiritual victory and maturity. If the perfect son of God had to hang on a tree before he could sit on the throne, then his disciples should not expect any easier way of life. In fact, Luke's gospel contains more what I like to call radical de-invitations of Christ than any other gospel. For example, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must, what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And in that same chapter at the end, Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me, but the Lord said, permit me, or excuse me, he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And then Luke 14 if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then he wraps up that section, so that none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. I mean, Jesus was taking no prisoners, right? When it came to what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to be a, a, one of his followers, that we must be willing to sacrifice everything to follow Jesus, our earthly comforts, our possessions, our relationships, to walk in his footsteps along the path of suffering and obedience that he willingly walked for us. Well, that's round two, and Jesus won that round as well. Now let's look at round three. Round three, and again, we start with Satan's deception in verse nine, and he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, or again, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will, interesting, now he's saying it is written, right? He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, we don't know exactly uh, the, the specific spot of the temple where Satan took Jesus for this third temptation, but most likely it was the tower on the southwestern corner uh, of the temple wall where there's a sheer drop of about 450 feet to the Kidron Valley. And again, what was Satan doing here? Trying to get Jesus to prove that he really was the Son of God. Since you are the Son of God... But now he turned up the heat, and he had seen Jesus' loyalty to Scripture and how effectively he used it to ward off the first two temptations. And so he decided to use Scripture against him. 
to try to beat him at his own game. And so now he says, oh, you want to play that way? Okay. Well, let me tell you what is, is also written. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, is what he was misquoting. And again, this is a good reminder to us that if you take verses out of their context or you don't view certain passages in light of how they fit into the whole counsel of God, you can prove almost anything from the Bible. You can make a case for just about whatever you want to. And almost every cult and every false teacher claims that what they teach is based on the Bible. But the verses that Satan quoted here were a reference to God's promise to protect those who are faithful to him. And so Satan knew that Jesus had been faithful to God, and so he tried to back him against the ropes, if you will, by, or the cage, if we're doing UFC, right? He backed him against the, the ropes by using scripture against him. And again, what he was saying here is, hey, if you trust God's word so much, well, then why don't you prove it by jumping and watching God send his angels to save you. And, and that would be instant proof to everyone that saw that, that you are the Messiah. I mean, come on, put your money where your mouth is, man. Unless, of course, you're too scared to step out in faith. And so Satan was implying that by not jumping, Jesus would be demonstrating a lack of faith. But Jesus saw right through Satan's ploy. He knew that he was being tempted to put God's love and power and patience to the test. And so let's see Jesus' defense, verse 12. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here he was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And again, the context here is that Israel, if you know anything about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, there was a pattern in their lives and in their relationship with God. And that is that they were constantly testing God, which made God angry because they were always wanting to see some sort of sign. I think of Psalm 95, verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. So the nation of Israel were constantly demanding that he perform another miracle. To, to prove his power, his presence. And yet, no matter what he did, it was never enough. I mean, you would think the, the deliverance from Egypt would have been enough, right? Those 10 plagues. Be like, okay, I'm good. I think he's, he's earned the right to be trusted. I ain't gonna mess with this God. I think he's gonna, we're gonna be just fine. And then you go out and you get, have the Red Sea parted, right? And you walk through the Red Sea, and you see all the enemies, you know, drowned behind you. But the point is that they were guilty of the sin of unbelief. That their problem wasn't a lack of evidence, but a lack of faith. And so Jesus knew better than to put himself in a situation in order to force God to act. Sometimes we do that. We presume upon God by acting carelessly or recklessly and then expect him to bail us out when we get into trouble. We take some foolish leap of faith by, by doing something even though we know it, it, it may not be wise or it violates God's word and then we ask God to catch us before we hit the bottom. When the bottom falls out. We shouldn't test God by seeing how far we can go in sin. And if we do that, it's proof that we don't trust him to begin with. Galatians 6, 7 says, God is not mocked. A man will reap what he sows. I heard it said one time, how many people reap to the flesh and then they pray for crop failure. In other words, Lord, I don't want to 
experience the consequence, the results of my sin. But God's not mocked. You, you, you will reap what you sow. And so testing God ultimately is not trusting God. Now look at how this wraps up here. Verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Again, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had been tempted by Satan and this wasn't the last time he would be tempted by Satan. Satan tempted him during his entire ministry. He was always lurking in the shadows waiting for just the right opportunity to attack. Probably the final attack was in the garden when Jesus was wrestling in his humanness. Lord, is there any other way? Not my will, but yours be done. But when Jesus was here in the wilderness, this was a specific, pre-planned, providential attack where Satan attacked him with every Jesus with every conceivable test, every kind of temptation, every weapon in his arsenal, I mean, he threw everything he had at him. And again, we've been learning about Satan's bag of tricks, right? 1 John 2.16, that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, I've noticed, I've pointed this out already, but... These were the same three temptations that he offered Jesus. The lust of the flesh, right? It's the bread, it's the I'm hungry. Something that would appeal to your body. The, the lust of the eyes that say, hey, look at all this that you could have. And then the pride of life. Hey, jump, man, and, you know, prove that you are who you are. I mean, how cool will you look, right? When all these angels swoop down, right? You're doing a swan dive off the temple right corner of the temple and all the angels swoop down and grab you. I mean, as Kyle teaches the young people, right, about peer pressure, uh, do it and you're cool, do it and you're cool, right? I mean, that's, that's essentially the pride of life here. But notice, none of these things appeal to Jesus. And so as a result, Satan lost the fight. I mean, this is a TKO in the third round. I say TKO because Satan is still up and around, isn't he? And according to the book of Revelation, Satan will finally be knocked out forever when Christ returns and casts him into the lake of fire along with all those who refuse to repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior. So I hope you see there's a whole lot more going on here in this supernatural battle that meets the eye. I mean, all the powers of hell were unleashed, unleashed on Jesus in that wilderness. And the devil's purpose since he was cast out of heaven has been to thwart God's plan of salvation. And he was under the delusion that if he could get Jesus to sin, then the whole plan of redemption would be destroyed and all hope for salvation would be shattered. And so he relentlessly pummeled Jesus with temptation in this futile attempt to get him to sin so that he couldn't be the sinless substitute for those who would turn from their sin and trust in him for salvation. And the fact that Jesus came through this battle untouched, unscathed by sin is undeniable proof that he truly is the son of God who has the power to save you from your sins. I say that because some of you are sitting here this morning and you are getting beat up by Satan big time. I mean, your, your life, your fight is the exact opposite of this. That Satan is winning every round. You, you give in to him all the time. I mean, it's like he's got your number. He owns you. He controls you. He rules over you. And you need to understand if that is the pattern of your life, then he is also planning to take you to hell with him unless you repent and place your faith in Christ as the only one who can not only forgive you, 
for your sin, but who can help you overcome sin and temptation. And so I just want to invite you, if that's you today, to come to Christ and let him rescue you from your sinful way of life. Now I told you that there was a, a strategy here. And, and just with the, in the next few minutes, I just want to point this out to you and I want to move from kind of the, the color commentary, if you will, of the fight and quickly analyze the fight to find out how Jesus beat Satan, right? And if you watch boxing or UFC or whatever, right, there's, there's always the analysis after the fight. And they pick the fight apart and say, well, he did this, he didn't do this, and did you notice this tactic here and this armbar here and this whatever here? I think a careful analysis of this spiritual showdown reveals the principles that Jesus used to have victory over Satan. And I hope you see, he didn't, he didn't ever rebuke Satan, he didn't bind Satan, nor, don't miss this, did he use any of his divine attributes to defeat Satan? Remember we talked about, right? He laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes, took on human limitations, that's the kenosis. All that to say is this, don't miss this, Jesus overcame temptation as a human. Which should encourage you. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. Oh yes, Jesus he actually couldn't be tempted anyway because he's God. I'm, that's not the world I live in. <laughs> no. He overcame temptation as a human. And the same resources he used to defeat Satan are available to us. You say, what are those? Well, let me just propose to you a three-step strategy for resisting Satan and causing him to flee. Because that's what it says. It says that he left him. Satan left him. Wouldn't that be nice? To have a break, <laughs> to catch our breath from being assaulted by Satan all the time. So what are, the, what, what are these three steps? I think step number one is yield to the Spirit of God. Yield to the Spirit of God. And again, looking back at the text, notice it says in verse one, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Let me stop there right now and just say, this week go online and find those messages on the Holy Spirit that Kyle, Aaron, and Chris taught on the Holy Spirit at the Crossroads Retreat. Because they, they, will, they unpacked all of this. What, what does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit? They'll fill in the gaps on that, those little terms. But, but just for now, suffice it to say that, that to be full of the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, is to be directed by the Spirit or controlled by the Spirit or influenced by the Spirit or yielded to the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, do not be drunk with wine, but be, what, filled with the Holy Spirit. So what's it like to be drunk with wine? It's to be controlled or under the influence, Right? of something, you need to be under the control or under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter five, verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets the desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are no longer under the law. And he goes in to talk about the deeds of the flesh and then the fruit of the Spirit. We know from our study in Romans that we mortify sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then I love 1 Thessalonians 4.8. This is a great passage. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, let me be specific, he says, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 
that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity but in sanctification. So again, Paul is coming down hard and saying, hey, listen, sexual morality, off limits. Not God's will, doesn't want you to be involved in it. But I love how he ends this little section. Verse eight, so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. In other words, hey, if you reject what I have to say, you're not rejecting me, you're rejecting God. But this is the beautiful part. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He's called the Holy Spirit for a reason because he wants to help you be what? Holy. That's the word sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your growth and holiness. Guess what? You're not on your own on this. You have the Holy Spirit. And so while God sets the bar high and says, hey, this is the standard to be sexually pure. Oh, by the way, I've given you the Holy Spirit to make that possible. And so the way to keep from giving in to Satan is by giving in to the Spirit. Yielding to the Spirit. Normally we yield to Satan. We yield to the temptation. We need to learn to yield to the Spirit who constantly indwells us. So number one is to yield to the Spirit of God. Number two is wield the Word of God. Wield the Word of God and this is probably the most obvious takeaway from this uh, uh, chapter four or or, uh, account in in Luke chapter four that Jesus responded to all three temptations the same exact way by quoting scripture. It is written, it is written, it is said. And of course we know that according to Ephesians chapter five, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter six, verse 17 that we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Psalm 119.9, how shall a young man keep his way pure? By living according to the Word of God. Verse 11, two verses later, um, I have hidden your word in my heart that I not, might not sin against you. Joshua 1.8 This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. And then Colossians chapter three, verse 16 says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Again, this is Jesus here, right? In a human body, He had all the power and the authority in the universe at his fingertips to use against Satan and his temptations. I mean, he could have smoked them. I mean, just like taking them out. But instead, he chose to use the one resource available to you and to me. What is that? The word of God. How cool is that? And so the sword of the spirit is the main weapon that God has given us to hack Satan and temptation into bits and pieces. And so by the way, this is a commercial for Wednesday night, okay? Come back Wednesday night, this Wednesday, to find out how to effectively use the spirit's sword to defend yourself against Satan's attacks. And then lastly, so you yield to the spirit of God, you wield the word of God, and lastly, you pray to the son of God. You pray to the Son of God. You say, well, where's that? I don't see that in Luke chapter four. Well, I admit here that the first two steps are drawn directly from the text. I think this third one is implied from the text and from the rest of scripture. Christ was the target of Satan's most vicious attack. He was tempted all the time and in every possible way. He experienced everything that we have except for sin. He was tempted like we are, but never gave into it. And so I believe that Jesus' temptation was not just to prove that he was the sinless son of God, but also to provide his followers with an empathetic high priest. Hebrews chapter two, verse 18, almost done here. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in, the, in, in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And then chapter four, verse 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. By the way, how do we draw near to the throne of grace? It's through prayer. It's through prayer. The point is that Jesus knows what it's like to live in this fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. He's been there, done that. So that he can relate to our battle with the fleshly lusts which wage war against our souls. And he serves as our advocate before the Father. And not only should we be praying to him, we should draw great strength and confidence knowing that he's praying for us. Romans 8, 34, Hebrews 7, 25, talking about how Christ intercedes for us. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, hey, just so you know, Satan has asked me, asked permission, my permission to sift you like wheat, just so you know, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. I mean, how encouraging is that? That in the moment you're being tempted to rebel against the Lord and to give in to some lust, some pleasure that you're being prayed for by your Savior, Jesus Christ. Which should make you want to jump in on that and pray to him, right? He's praying for you. You jump in there and you start praying to him. And we know we're supposed to pray things like, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, Matthew 6, 13. Jesus said to the disciples in the garden, pray that you will not enter into temptation. This is a huge subject, is the role of prayer in spiritual warfare. Lord willing, we're going to look at that next Sunday. But let me just leave you with this. A quote from John Owen. Love this. He said this, Jesus was tempted so he could be like us and we are tempted so we can be like Jesus. Jesus was tempted so he could be like us. We are tempted so we can be like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word and how it's just so timely and relevant. Um, You didn't leave us here on our own to try to figure out all this uh, on our own or to do it all in our own strength. You gave us your word, you gave us your spirit two powerful tools, Lord, that we need to learn to rely on better, to utilize more effectively and efficiently. And so, Lord, would this message uh, make its way into our heart and mind and ultimately out in our life this morning. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen.